0: Welcome to HBTV. I'm Harry Binswanger, the HB in HBTV. Today, we're taking up the subject, why are we not dead? Interesting way of putting it, isn't it? The real question is, given all the bad things that have happened since Ayn Rand was writing, why are we not in conditions a hundred times worse than we are? Why are we not living in a fascist dictatorship or a communist dictatorship? Why are we not in a new dark ages going out into the forest for roots and berries? How come we have an advanced industrial civilization and I'm able to talk to you here from my home in Florida, And you're around the world. That is, consider this quote from 1961 from Ayn Rand. It's from her book, For the New Intellectual, the title essay. It was the morality of altruism that undercut America and is now destroying her. From her start, America was torn by the clash of her political system with the altruist morality. Capitalism and altruism are incompatible. They are philosophical opposites. They cannot coexist in the same man or in the same society. Today, the conflict has reached its ultimate climax, 1961 now, The choice is clear cut, either a new morality of rational self-interest, but we certainly don't have that, with its consequences of freedom, justice, progress, and man's happiness on earth, or the primordial morality of altruism with its consequences of slavery, brute force, stagnant terror, and sacrificial furnaces. Dot, 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 evasions, equivocations, and guilty apologies
1: will not work any longer.
0: Well, it seems to have worked a lot longer. Why is that? What's going on? How are we to understand the fact that what she says makes perfect sense, but things have worked out better? not great there's still a lot worse and i'm going to begin with that what's worse now than when she wrote that but how do we explain that it's not ultimately worked out to stagnant terror and sacrificial furnaces here's what's worse religion in america in 1961, when she wrote that, I
1: was going to college. And I don't
0: know anyone who went to church or synagogue from that from uh, MIT, where I went to school. Religion was not an option for an educated person.
1: Now, it's all
0: over the place. It's in academia. It's in public life. Ronald Reagan was instrumental in making religion a political issue, a political phenomenon. It wasn't before that. There was lip service paid to it, of course. And there were the uh, trappings and vestiges of a more religious age centuries earlier. But... It was not a force in public life. So that's much worse now. The welfare state. The welfare state, that was a controversial idea with faintly negative overtones when she wrote this. The welfare state is what they had in England and Europe. And we were quite aware in this country that we were more advanced than they uh, materially that uh, they were stagnant and the welfare state didn't seem like a very good idea. Well, that ended, who ended it? Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan came up with the phrase, the social safety net. That was not heard before 1980. That was his coining, that was his term, and it froze in place the entire apparatus of the welfare state.
1: Take what happened with COVID.
0: That would have been unthinkable back when she wrote this. Take the role of the FDA in preventing us from taking what we wanted to take and requiring all kinds of things to be mandated by the government. Jack Kennedy in 1962 changed the mandate of the FDA. Before that, it's with regard to medicine, as it was with regard to food, its issue was it can't harm. It can't be poisonous or destructive. It's gotta be safe. That was the only issue. Kennedy got through that it has to be safe and effective. So while millions died, the FDA kept from the American public vaccines that had been invented nine or 10 months earlier and had been tested to show that it was safe and effective, actually, in March. And we didn't get them until December or January of the following year.
1: Uh, Trump.
0: Trump has destroyed the Republican Party. There is no longer any conservative in the old sense, which was bad enough, conservative party. It's now the nationalist, the uh, religious, uh, uh, traditionalists, um, January 6th epitomized, uh, anti-science and uh, Pro-censorship, anti-Big Pharma. Trump just made a speech about how he's going to stop Big Pharma. Uh, former objectivists have, have jumped on the bandwagon, bandwagon of saying big tech, you know, Facebook and that sort of thing, are censoring us because, although they don't put it this way, they are exercising their freedom of speech by not having on people they disagree with not offering to spread ideas they find repugnant. That's their right. That's the right of free speech. Both liberals and conservatives have abandoned free speech. Conservatives were never very much in favor of free speech because they wanted censorship of, quote, obscenity, quote, and all kinds of anti-sex laws. But liberals were staunch in opposition. But there aren't any liberals anymore. And if you use the term liberal, I urge you to get it out of your vocabulary. If you want to call them progressives, I call them regressives, go ahead. But the the neutral term is leftists. There are no liberals. Uh, Joe Lieberman was the last liberal and we haven't heard from him in some time. So the... uh, Recent history you know, from COVID through January 6th uh, shows the destruction of any opposition in the political terms. I don't know whether we can ever recover from that until there's an intellectual revolution, which there is only faint signs of so far. How about runaway spending? You know, just the size of the government's take out of everyone's pocketbook. It's going to be hard to grasp this. And maybe I've got the figures wrong with somebody who's there, you know, Google it. But I remember Eisenhower's budget reaching $100 billion. $100 billion that was in late in his term i remember it was 70 billion before that and now it's 6 trillion 8 trillion and a trillion is 1000 billion so obviously there's some inflation in here but the the expansion of government spending and that's just the federal government is unbelievable in 1961 when she wrote that few states had an income tax Now there's about three states that don't have an income tax and a sizable income tax. So economically, financially, things have gotten much worse. Now you might say, well, wait, they've lowered the tax rate. They made it less progressive. And that's true, except the ratio here quoted, as the left themselves say, of 92% when Kennedy took office. No one paid that. I don't think there was a single tax return that paid a 92% rate. There were all kinds of loopholes and deductions, things you don't know anything about, like cattle raising was a big deduction um, that people took advantage of. So there's no question the size of government, in absolute and relative terms both, is much bigger than it was in 1962. The scope of the regulatory state, there was no environmental movement. There was no EPA. There uh, wasn't a Department of Energy. Do you know in the 50s, in the late 50s, when I was old enough to hear about such things and remember them, there was no, aid to fed- no federal aid to education. The left wanted the government to give money to colleges. And the right was saying federal aid means federal control. Federal aid means federal control. And the left was, oh no, absolutely not. That's ridiculous. And of course, now we have total federal control, and not the state control is any better, of the curriculum and the in teaching of history and the humanities is completely altered from what it was uh, when I grew up in the 40s and 50s. So things have gotten a lot worse in many, many respects, let alone, you know, gender craziness and woke this and that. I mean, that was unthinkable in 1961. Yeah, here we are not dead.
1: Why? Well, I'm going to give an answer
0: that uh, is a little unusual and then I'm going to give an answer that you expect. Maybe you expect. The little unusual one is that technology has saved us. Technology has brought an amount of wealth that is so great and so vast that even the increase in government spending can't keep up with it. It's not just the dollars in your uh, wallet. It's things like this show. There's no mind-body dichotomy. Increasing man's material control over his environment brings the opportunity for greater intellectual discovery. It brings about a division of labor intellectually as well as materially. But you know, consider the hours in your life that you have saved by, A, not having to go to store but just buying on Amazon, and B, not getting lost because there's global positioning satellites it's it's incalculable. And what and the shopping that you can do, I have a classic car. I shopped the whole country for parts for this 1960 automobile that you can't, you know, just go to a dealer and get. This wouldn't have been possible. You'd have to make trips to junkyards in the old days. That's what they did. But I can get parts from Canada. China, well, not China because they didn't make it for my car back then, but all over this country uh, at the click of a mouse.
1: That means the standard of living
0: is so much higher than it was in 1961. Even though you don't realize it, you know there's a reverse frog effect you know the story about the frog is put in water and if you if you put him in boiling water he'll jump right out but if you slowly increase the temperature he'll adjust to it and be boiled alive not realize it well the same thing is true for goodness if you make incremental improvements in your life it takes an effort to stand back and consider what a better physical conditions of existence you have due to technology. And it's all about the web. It's all about computing power. And now artificial intelligence is going to move us even further for even faster forward. So the same technological advance that has saved us from the siphoning of our blood into the welfare state, down various ravels has made it possible for the mind to be globalized. Now, I'm going to give you an example. A few days ago, I was in Austin, Texas at a workshop for objectivists, and I just made some notes here about the people, the participants' who who were there, what countries they were from, that best I can remember. Now, this is out of about 20 people. Syria, there was a grad student in economics from Syria. Of course, Canada,
1: Iran, Poland, and Israel.
0: I'm sure I'm forgetting a few people, um, and where they came from, because they all spoke English. That's another thing that absolutely not true in Ayn Rand's day when when this was written. The whole world is adopting English because it's a language of computers, technology, and finance. So that means that the discoveries that are made in... Sri Lanka or Outer Mongolia, you think I'm joking, but can be shared. Your own Brook went to Outer Mongolia where he was considered a hero. They knew about Ayn Rand there. This means the population that we can draw on is multiplied 20-fold. The population of the world is 20-fold the population of the U.S. And even if you throw in Canada, it's still 20-fold. So when I started my little journal, the Objectivist Forum, in 1980, a couple of years after 1980, I did a breakdown of where people were from who were subscribing to the Objectivist Forum. Of course, almost all of them were from the US, but there was a sizable contingent, about 10% were from Canada. And then about 2% were from Australia
1: and Norway. What happened to England? Forget Syria, Iran,
0: Poland. What happened to England? Ayn Rand was unknown in England when she wrote this. There had been some kind of problem with the publisher, and I went into bookstores and always asked for Ayn Rand, and no one in England had heard of her. I went to Heffers uh, in Cambridge, where Cambridge University is. Heffers is like the main university bookstore there. They have two floors, and huge amount of inventory. And I asked the bookseller, do you have anything by Ayn Rand? Who? Ayn Rand, she wrote Atlas Shrugged and the Fountainhead. No, never heard of those. Now that's, it's fixed now, but that was 1961. So as knowledge of objectivism disperses around the world, the number of young, active young minds we can call upon increases proportionally. And we've had an impact. First, Ayn Rand had an impact. And this is the other, now we're getting to the really fascinating stuff. Of course, there's Alan Greenspan, who was a traitor to objectivism, but even so, an admirer of Ayn Rand who betrayed her, became the most powerful economic figure in the world when he headed the Federal Reserve. But let's not call him that. Let's say John Allison was the head of the ninth largest bank in the country and was not only a fan of Atlas Shrugged or something like that, but was on the board of directors, and still is, of the Ayn Rand Institute, And studied OPAR intensively and gets it, understands that this is an intellectual revolution, a philosophic revolution. And it goes all the way from that through people like Steve Jobs, you know, who was inspired by Atlas Shrugged, according to reports. Bill Gates, who I don't associate with uh, objectivism at all, bought a, a huge chunk of Ayn Rand's papers when they were put up for auction but I think a lot of people are in the position of um, Billie Jean King now the younger ones of you out there don't know who Billie Jean King is Billie Jean King was a tennis pro and celebrity and she was friends with an objectivist named Ed Snyder or at least knew him. Maybe friends is too much. Uh, Who owned the Philadelphia Flyers. He was in Pennsylvania. And I had dinner with Ed and Billie Jean King in a Philadelphia restaurant once. And Billie Jean King said about Ayn Rand, dynamite lady.
1: And I, you know, pushed a
0: little. And she said, she taught me that I didn't have to accept every charity event that was put in front of me.
1: Okay, Ayn
0: Rand used to say, from each according to their ability. So she didn't get you know anything deep, but she got the idea of, I've got a life, I don't have to apologize by doing charity events. It's a little tiny bit. So all the way from people who recognize that there's a philosophy that needs to be studied and disseminated like John Allison, I mean, besides the philosophers here, but business people, public people, to Billie Jean King is a big swath of people in American culture and now reaching out across the world who have profited from Ayn Rand's ideas. And I think that's a large reason. You know, you don't see them coming out and saying, uh, read Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology and Contribute to the Ayn Rand Institute. But it makes a difference in their lives and it makes a difference in how much crap they're willing to take from government before they stand up. Uh, And let me now mention the whole libertarian movement, the whole libertarian movement, which is problems and benefits.
1: Who put that on the map?
0: Robert Nozick, Anarchy, State, and Utopia was, I believe, on the cover of Time Magazine, certainly featured in Time Magazine when it came out in 1976. Nozick was at Harvard. He wrote Anarchy, State, and Utopia to put forward a kind of libertarian manifesto. It's got a lot of good things in it and a lot of bad things. It's quite a mix. The bad things are mainly the uh, methodology of modern philosophy. But where did he get it? He got it from Ayn Rand. He read Atlas Shrugged. He liked Atlas Shrugged. He wrote an article on the objectivist proof of the life as a standard of value, arguing it wouldn't work, didn't go through. Uh, but that's why. We have a libertarian movement today. Before that, the libertarian movement was Foundation for Economic Education. And it was about, aside from the people already influenced by Ayn Rand, it was about 20 people. You saw the same names publishing in The Freeman, which was the only libertarian magazine at that time, Uh, issue after issue, people you've never heard of, like Clarence B. Carson. Paul Poirot. So it was a really backorder movement. And Nozick made it academically respectable because he was at Harvard and you couldn't just shrug him off. And he gave these crazy philosophic arguments for individual rights. He wasn't arguing for objectivism. He was arguing for capitalism. But that had never been done before. No one, except for mine, Rand, no one had gone out there with a public voice that could be heard and say, laissez-faire is the only system compatible with individual rights. And that was the message of anarchy, state, and utopia. And he was anti-anarchy and on pretty much the right grounds, although his methodology was not right. But he understood what was wrong with anarchy.
1: Now, the nicest thing that I observed recently is that there are two
0: legal foundations that have any prominence, the Institute for Justice and the Pacific Legal Foundation. Both of them are headed by objectivists. That is, both of the directors of litigation are are objectivists. Larry Salzman at Pacific Legal Foundation, and Dana Berliner at the Institute for Justice. Not only that, but there's a lot of objectivist influence I know about the Institute for Justice, uh, but uh, I assume it's pretty similar for the Pacific Legal Foundation. So um, the reason that that I think this is really good is Pacific Legal Foundation just won two important supreme court cases. You probably read about it about a month ago. I'm going to be interviewing Larry Salzman next Monday here on this channel. So be sure and tune in to see what those supreme court cases were and what they
1: established.
0: And now for the most and, well, I don't know what's the most encouraging, most surprising thing. Academia is better now than it was maybe not in 1961, but give me 1965. And it's better. It's better. Philosophy Philosophy had committed absolute suicide in the 60s. It Denied that there was any subject matter to philosophy. It's a method. We do philosophy. John Nelson at the University of Colorado, philosopher, uh, told me philosophy deals with questions that aren't vague enough, that aren't specific enough, that are too vague to be handed over to the sciences. As soon as a question becomes dealable with, it leaves philosophy and becomes part of the sciences. Uh, Paul Feyerabend at Berkeley wrote a book entitled Against Method. It's a philosophy of science book, and you probably know about his uh, science without experience argument, which he argued that we don't need the senses and observation to do science we can just engage in ESP with computers. Berkeley, Berkeley philosopher. And he said in against method, there's only one rule of method, anything goes. So you have no idea how bad philosophy was at its bottom but it's gotten considerably better. I'm going mostly by hearsay here from people who are in academia. But for one thing, there's now a big Aristotle contingent. People who are followers of Aristotle think he's relevant to current issues, try to live by his ethics, and have discovered a more Aristotelian Aristotle beneath the medieval interpretations, which the traditional view has handed down to us. So uh philosophy, and, and when I say it's got better, I rank it as from zero to one and a half or two on a scale of ten. But zero is a very low number. And to get to one and a half, maybe two, is a big improvement. But a lot of improvement is left to go. Economics is better. Economics uh has more understanding of capitalism than it used to. I could tell you a story, but I don't want to run too late here. But in the 70s, a a, a, a pro-capitalist, subjectivist economist was talking, i will just short-circuit, talking about gold and a professor in the department at, uh, I think this was McGill, which is probably the, the second or first best university in Canada, said that the coming uh, legalization of gold ownership, this was just about the time it was uh, you were allowed to own gold again, would make the price of gold drop to $7 an ounce. He said gold could not maintain any kind of decent price without government support. So, his view, where our view was that the, the government held down the price of gold, his view was that, held, he held, that they held it up. And of course, gold is now about $2,000 an ounce. Psychology is better, much better. There was no psychology at the time that Ayn Rand wrote this article. I mean, there was Freud, if you consider that psychology. We are lived by unknown and unknowable forces. Michelangelo was a great sculptor because he wanted to play with his feces as a kid. Everybody wants to sleep with their mother and kill their father, the Oedipus complex. You know, really stupid things. Um, so he, his view was that man is a lustful beast with a thin veneer of restrictions imposed by taboo. The other school is even worse. That was behaviorism, which had all the scientists on their side. The Freudians were not really scientists, but the scientists thought consciousness doesn't exist. In fact, the word consciousness is meaningless and we should never use it. And they never did. That's why the official definition of psychology is the study of behavior.
1: The study of behavior,
0: not the study of mind, or the mind's influence on behavior, or consciousness, or thinking, and feeling, and personality. Behavior, because mind was not allowed. So that's gone. There's been the, quote, cognitive revolution. Not to be confused with the computer science version, which is no better than behaviorism. You know, there's the and uh, uh, not Neil Simon, um, Simon at uh, Carnegie Mellon, Mellon uh, who says a man is a symbol processing device. There's that whole computerization view of man, which is crap. And I'm not talking about that, but the people, you know, following Aaron Beck, who was following Ayn Rand and maybe Albert Ellis, holding that. Emotions come from thoughts. Imagine that. Uh, That view is now acceptable. Still no free will. Free will is still out of the question. But the idea that you have a mind and maybe can introspect a little and tell us what's going on in it is now acceptable. So intellectually, materially, and in uh, the ways that that fans out to create, we are better off. Government and politics, culture, you know, like art and so forth, they we're worse off. Well, actually I shouldn't say art. Uh, the 60s were probably the low point for art. And now uh, instead of, oh, Calcutta on Broadway, Which was just a nude play. We have um, some that seem to be more intellectual, like Hamilton celebrating a founding father. Now, there was 1776 on Broadway in the late 70s, but the lead actress was an objectivist. But that's not, I shouldn't have thrown that in because (laughs) that's not why it was decent if it was decent i'm not i never saw it
1: so i'm not so sure about art but politics the regulatory state
0: it must be 10 times the size of what it was when she wrote for the new intellectual and welfare state is absolutely taken for granted the republican party is destroyed the Democratic Party is in the control of woke regressives. Everybody thinks the climate is dooming us and the governments of the world have to get together and stop production. That, you know, is really awful, but the deeper things are getting better and with the globalization, we have access to more minds, hopefully some minds of genius. and that's what it's going to take. So uh, thank you very much. I assume there are probably questions which we can take up in next. No, next Monday is Larry Salzman of Pacific Legal Foundation. So save your questions and we'll take them up Monday after that, two weeks from today. Thank you for your attendance and I hope to see you next week. Did I say meeting of the minds? I have two things going, HBTV, HBTV next week, Larry Salzman, two weeks, HBTV is q bye.